I'm not going to hiccup for you guys. Good to see you guys. Why don't you guys, um, why don't you bow with me real quick? We're going to pray, and um, as soon as I'm done praying, um, you can raise your hand if you need a Bible. Uh, we have some ushers that would love to get you guys a Bible. We started a new series about three weeks ago looking at the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Uh, so we're going to be spending the next several months looking specifically at uh, who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit does and why that's so significant, why that's so important for us. So let me pray first, and then we'll begin to get to work at trying to understand and expanding our minds and understanding who the Holy Spirit is and why it's so important to us. So God, we commit this time in your hands. We just confess that uh, we, even though many of us, God, here have met Jesus, uh, it means we have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of us. Uh, we confess that many of us, God, our minds are mastered, controlled by, influenced by things of this world. Um, and we want to be mastered by, controlled by, influenced by the things of heaven. And so, God, we, we pray that you would take our hearts take our thoughts captive, pray that you would open our eyes to, to peer into a whole other realm, to be able to see who you are, to see how much you love us, God, to see that trusting you is the thing that you call us to do, and it's what actually leads to life. Distrusting you doesn't lead to life, it actually leads away from you, which means it leads away from life itself. So God, we pray that you would open our eyes, help us to see how you work, what you do, and what you intend to do in our lives as being a life-giving God, bringing life to us. So we commit this time in your hands. We pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So raise your hand if you guys need a Bible. Get your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, please keep this as our gift to you guys. So we started several weeks ago taking a look at, like I mentioned, the subject, the person, the theme of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Last week, we looked specifically at the Holy Spirit and God and how the Holy Spirit is not just simply a force, um, because we are people who love Jesus and we want to walk in the Spirit. Uh, we, we want to understand who He is. And yet oftentimes there's a lot of confusion as to who the Holy Spirit is. And a lot of times people think of the Holy Spirit as being nothing more than like a force, kind of akin to uh, like the force in Star Wars. And we all love Star Wars because if you are a good person, you love Star Wars. And, but the reality is, is that the force in the, in the movie Star Wars is nothing like the force of the Holy Spirit. It's different because the force in Star Wars is this impersonal force. The, uh, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is not in, just merely an impersonal force. It is a personal force presence of God. It's one of the things that we've said over the past couple of weeks. One of my favorite theologians, a guy by the name of Gordon Fee, basically describes the Holy Spirit as God's empowering presence. In other words, he is the very presence of God. He is the very empowerment of God. Uh, he is God. The Holy Spirit is God's empowering presence. That's a great way to think about who the Holy Spirit is. He's not just some abstract, impersonal force. And a lot of times, I think part of the reason why we tend to distance our thinking from who the Holy Spirit is, and a lot of, it makes a lot of sense, but for the most part, when we think about God as Father, um, there are ways in which we can understand God as Father around us. I mean, in other words, the idea of fatherhood is not an abstract theme. All of us have dads. Problem is, not all of us have good dads, and when we think about God as Father, we may wrestle with understanding God as a good father, and that's a very real possibility for maybe some of you. The idea of understanding God as son or like Jesus, again, is not that abstract because we understand what sonship is to some degree. Um, but to understand God as Holy Spirit is, is a little bit more challenging because for the most part, in our context, in our culture, we don't really have 
any form of substance to understand or relate to what spirit is. Because spirit, by its nature, is non-substance. In other words, it is, it has, it's non-material. So when we think about the natural world in which we live in, trying to understand Holy Spirit in, in a naturalistic world, understanding something that is by nature uh, non-material in a material world, that's where it gets a little bit elusive or difficult or challenging for us. So oftentimes, by default, it's a little bit easier to distance ourselves from the theme, the person, the concept, the reality of the Holy Spirit, because it's a little bit more difficult to understand. And I would suggest we should never do that. It would be really dangerous for us to do that, because the reality is, is the Holy Spirit is God himself, wanting to work in our lives, wanting to work in creation, wanting to work within the church. Um, I think it was uh, A.W. Tozer who said something to the fact, and I'm just kind of paraphrasing what he had said, but he said something to the fact that if you were to take the Holy Spirit out of the early church, you'd really have nothing. Like the, Holy, the, the church would just simply collapse in and of itself because the Holy Spirit was such an integral work and part of the movement, the work, the momentum of the early church. But he went on to add kind of a critique by saying that if you were to take the Holy Spirit out of the modern church, everything would just continue as normal. I mean, think about that critique. It's a powerful critique we've got to really kind of understand and think about. Because what he's basically suggesting is that most of what we do, or at least much of what can be done in the modern church, uh, can simply be done from a boardroom. It can simply be done by simply bright minds coming together, thinking through, projecting, processing, planning, strategizing ways to do stuff, that's in a lot of ways completely independent of the actual work and the power of the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's frightening when you think about it. Because I think really if any of us would really consider that at any length, we'd realize we don't want that to be what defines us. We want to live lives that are supernaturally fused and charged and empowered by God. Because the reality is the life that God gives us for it to really be effective, for it to really be more than just simply a facade. The problem is many of us are simply content with a very small, uh, shallow form of Christianity. We're content with just simply confessing certain creeds about Christ or about the Holy Spirit, about God, but not really going deep with God, not really living our lives ordered and organized and orchestrated by God himself. So for those of us that really want to let our lives be orchestrated and organized by God, we have to really address some of these realities as to how the Holy Spirit wants to work in our lives. We have to really come clean and have honest hearts and let God begin to speak to us and shape us. So what I want to do is over the next few weeks, we're going to be taking a look, as I already mentioned, kind of the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. A lot of times when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we immediately want to get into the nitty gritty and the abstract type stuff and the stuff that's kind of supernatural like miracles and signs and prophecies and tongues and all these other types of things and we will get to those things trust me we will try to not leave any stone unturned and we'll try to address all sorts of subjects like what is baptism of the holy spirit what is filling with the holy spirit what is all these things that oftentimes are very confusing we will address all of them and try to apply all of this stuff to the scripture and ask where do we fit in with this how do we allow god to do the things that God wants to do in our lives. In other words, if we're followers of Jesus, we really want to truly allow everything that God has for us to be a part of our experience, part of our lives. 
We don't want to simply be content with just a superficial understanding and relationship with God. We want to go deep. We really, truly want to let God challenge us and shape us and reshape us and give us life. Because otherwise, what ends up happening, the danger is we just simply become fake. We just simply become another group of people that gather together on a Sunday morning with real, no, well, substance or life. And at some point, that runs its course and it becomes boring. It becomes worthless. We want to be people that really, truly know God, really know God's purposes and mission for the church and be a part of that. That's where life is really to be found. It's in God. So with that, I want to really begin to take a look at and shape our mind and understanding as to who uh, Jesus is in relationship to the Holy Spirit. And if you've ever read, studied the life of Jesus, one of the things, especially if you just simply read the gospel accounts, one of the things you cannot um, in any way miss, I think, if you're not really reading the text carefully, is that Jesus' life is always spoken of in some direct relationship to the Holy Spirit. Um, for our purposes this morning, even though we, I could have kind of followed uh, the course or the theme through any of the New Testament uh, Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, for the sake of really kind of keeping some sort of consistency, I'm going to focus upon how Luke, uh, the second Gospel writer, kind of records the life of Jesus because he really emphasizes the importance, the relationship of Jesus to the Holy Spirit. And then we'll begin to ask some questions as to why is this so significant, what's the big deal, why is John or why is Mark or why is Luke in this particular case telling us this relationship between Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And then finally, we'll ask kind of the questions, how does this relate to us? What difference does it make for us that Jesus was so led by the Holy Spirit? So first, let's just let the scripture speak for itself. Um, so really, for the most part, it's going to be a little bit more theological, hopefully not dry, um, but the idea is I want for you to just think through how the gospel writers, uh, in particular Luke, writes about Jesus in relationship to the Holy Spirit. So with that, we'll take a look at four specific arenas of Jesus' life. One, birth. Two, baptism. Three, temptation or the wilderness experience, which uh, encompasses 40 days. And then ultimately, fourthly, the life of Jesus, uh, pre-ministry, then ultimately post-ministry, and then resurrection. So let's first of all jump in and take a look at birth. More specifically, we might be talking about kind of his conception, in other words, as opposed to his birth. Uh, and the story goes something like this, like this in Luke chapter 1, verse 35. Luke, the narrator, the author, says this. When Jesus also had been, I'm sorry, Luke 1.35 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. And the angel answered to her, it's Mary. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore, the child will be born. He will be called Holy. And if you're familiar with the storyline, what happens was Mary was basically called by God, selected by God, to give birth to this up-and-coming king, Messiah king. In other words, is what the Jews were looking forward to. Now, this was not Mary. Mary's understanding probably in this particular setting would not have been like, oh, I'm giving birth to God. That's probably not, for the most part, what she was thinking about. She was probably thinking, I'm giving birth to a king, a future king, the king that is in the lineage of David, a king that will come and make this world, which is filled with injustice and brokenness and death and destruction, this king will come and set this broken world to right. This king will come and conquer our enemies. This king will come and bring life to where there was death. This king will come and bring streams of life and water in desert dry areas. That's probably what Mary would have thought. But the challenge or the problem that Mary had was she was a virgin. That's kind of a problem. So she asks the angel that has come to deliver this great news, 
how is this going to happen? I'm a, I'm a virgin. Um, it's a little bit challenging. And then the answer from the angel is that the Holy Spirit will bring life to where there was no life. So at Jesus's conception, it was the Holy Spirit that was basically told to us was the one that actually gave him life. Again, this is significant. There are these details in the text that shouldn't be overlooked. There's a reason why Luke, Matthew, Mark, John all want us to be aware of the fact that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit because there is a relationship between Jesus and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, he was not operative, he was not moving, then Jesus wouldn't be there. There was a direct relationship between Jesus' conception, Jesus coming into this world, and the Holy Spirit. Again, first thing to keep in mind. It's important. Second thing is Jesus' baptism. Uh, To that, I want you to turn real quick to the book of Luke, chapter 3. In the story, it picks up somewhere around verse 21. Uh, If you're familiar with the story, we're told about this guy by the name of John, John the Baptizer. He was uh, what I described last week as kind of like this counter-temple movement. So in Jerusalem and Israel, in this time, in this day, there was a lot of people that were following Yahweh, but they were basically following Yahweh through the form of a corrupt temple system. And most people knew the temple was corrupt. Jesus obviously knew the temple was corrupt. It was led by a bunch of very corrupt people. So rather than bringing light into the world, these people were basically taking the light that should have been shining brightly in the world via the temple. Instead, they were taking this light and putting it underneath a bushel. They were basically... Uh, taking something that was to be life-giving and created something that was filled with injustice. And so John was basically calling people to follow Yahweh. It was basically a renewed effort to say, if you really want to be Yahweh's people, come follow me away from the temple out into the wilderness. And we're going to pray for you and we're going to baptize you. This is your way of saying you want to come clean, like literally come clean. Not just physically, like through the waters of the Jordan, meaning you're going to have your soiled clothes washed, but it was also metaphorically saying that I want to have my soiled soul washed and I want to be a follower of Yahweh. And shockingly, in the middle of John's, uh, or I should say the height of John's career, uh, lots of people, hundreds, were coming out to hear John, soldiers were coming out to hear John, religious priests were coming out to hear John, because everyone was intrigued by this ministry that John had been given to him. Jesus comes out to John out in the wilderness and basically says, I'm going to be Baptized. Now, Jesus had already known John. John already knew Jesus because they were actually cousins. Jesus gets baptized. But this was a very unusual baptism for Jesus because what we're told, again, in the story, in verse 21, I'll pick it up there, it says, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him bodily like a dove. So what Luke wants us to be aware of as well as the other gospel writers, is that Jesus' baptism was really unique. So what happened was the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus. This is a way of basically saying that Jesus is going to be, Jesus is unique, he's special, he's anointed by God. And John, being a prophet, being one that was aware of Old Testament scriptures, he would have known that there were these prophecies in the Old Testament that basically said, one day... God is going to turn this dead, dry land called Israel that has basically become this barren branch into this flowering, green, beautiful garden one day. And the way that God would do this is he would bring the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would be like rivers of water bringing life from deep within and overflowing. 
And that God would do this through a king. The king would be anointed. He would come. He would have special powers and abilities. And those that are within the Messiah, those that are part of this king's kingship, or these that are part or subjects of this king's kingdom, will also share in the same fate as this king. You guys follow along so far? Told you it's a little bit theological, but you've got to follow the storyline. The storyline is that this king, King Jesus, will one day baptize others with the Holy Spirit that he himself had received. So here we have Jesus receiving the Holy Spirit, Jesus being conceived in the Spirit, Jesus being given the Holy Spirit, and then later on, we're told in chapter 4, we see something very intriguing, very interesting about the life of Jesus. Because if you read the rest of chapter 3, and again, most of us, when we read our Bibles, we read basically uh, from chapter to chapter, and we stop at one chapter, and we kind of wait in a whole day, and go back, and we read another chapter, if you have a habit of reading the Bible. Hopefully, you guys all have habits of reading the Bible. They're good habits, not dead, dry habits. But the idea is that oftentimes, we stop at chapter breaks. And really, the Bible, when it was originally written, was written without chapters and without verses. This was added uh, much later as a way of basically helping us to reference. So when we're reading the scripture, I can say, open up in Luke chapter 4, and all of you guys know exactly where it's at. It's got an address and a phone number and so on and so forth. But the point of the matter is, is that we have a tendency to stop at one place. So if you read the story all the way through, what you would have read in John or Luke chapter 3, when it says that Jesus had the Holy Spirit come upon him, immediately next there would have been this genealogy. And the point of the genealogy would have been to reaffirm that Jesus has a place historically within the people of Israel. In other words, this is Luke's way of basically saying Jesus was just, he wasn't just a nobody coming off the street who had this absolutely ridiculously crazy baptism, but that this Jesus was given the Holy Spirit, has a distinct purpose and a vocation and call and a placement within the genealogy of Israel's history. And then it goes on to say in chapter 4, verse 1, just in case you lost track of the theme of Jesus slash Holy Spirit, almost like a parenthetical statement. He starts on chapter 4, verse 1, where he says this, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. So again, if you kind of ended from John chapter 3, verse 21 or 22, it says this, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him bodily, then the parenthetical statement of genealogy. Chapter 4, verse 1, this is then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. It's almost as if Luke is basically saying, look, I don't want you to forget one key fact here. Yeah, think about Jesus, but don't lose sight of the fact that this Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit. This is what seems to be on Luke's mind. He wants for us to get the connection between Jesus and the Holy Spirit. But he tells us something about Jesus and the Holy Spirit. He says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, then returned from the Jordan to where John was at, and then was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days. So if you're familiar with this storyline now, Jesus, again, being led by the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, then led by the Holy Spirit. In fact, that's really kind of what the Christian walk is, being filled by the Holy Spirit and being led by the Holy Spirit. More on that in just a moment. Like, what does it mean to be led by the Holy Spirit in our lives? And the short, truncated answer is, it looks like Jesus. It looks like Jesus, because Jesus, we'll see in just a moment, kind of build this out even further, Jesus was literally led by the Spirit. Jesus lived the life by the Holy Spirit. And it goes on to say that Jesus was then led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where then he would be tempted for 40 days. Most of us are familiar with that, but for the sake of moving on, we're going to go on to the very next thing, where we then begin to see the life of Jesus. And as I mentioned, you can think about Jesus' life divided into major categories. One, age, you know, birth to around age 30. And this is sort of what's commonly called kind of the hidden 
years of Jesus' life. In other words, not much is known about the life of Jesus from birth to age 30. I mean, we kind of lose track of him somewhere between 9 to 12, somewhere around there. And then from 9 to 12, uh, Jesus reappears on the scene at around age 30. And there's all sorts of speculation as to, like, what happened with Jesus. And we're like, well, Jesus probably went to India and learned a bunch of, like, crazy magic tricks. And it's like, again, it's like that's just pure speculation. There's nothing at all stated at all about that. It's complete speculation. But the point of the matter is, is that not much is mentioned about the life of Jesus prior to age 30. And then after age 30 is when Jesus comes on and begins to start his actual public ministry. But what we're told about Jesus' ministry once he started is in Luke chapter 4, verse 14... It says in verse 14, it says, and then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. So again, uh, Jesus receives the Holy Spirit at his baptism. Immediately after the baptism, the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. And then again, Luke, wanting to make certain that we don't miss the point, tells us in verse 14, then Jesus returned in the power of the Holy Spirit to Galilee. So if you think of it this way, Jordan is kind of, uh, the river Jordan would, would have been closer to Jerusalem. So we're talking maybe 70 miles or so, and again, all this is by foot. So Jesus would have been traveling down to Jordan. He would have gone to Jerusalem. He would have then gone now into this particular region of Galilee, which is pretty far away. But again, how did Jesus do all this? Luke wants to make sure that we understand everything Jesus does is, well, within the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what Luke seems for us to want to, uh, for us to, under, to get and understand. And then what we see is when Jesus comes into the region of the Galilee, he comes into the region of what's called Nazareth. Now, Nazareth would have been sort of his hometown. This would have been uh, Jesus' hood. Jesus would have been familiar with the people there. So in most little villages back in those days, uh, they would have had a synagogue. And a synagogue back in those days would have been something akin to like a church. Uh, some of them were really small, you know, 15 people. Some of them were really large. And there's all sorts of synagogues throughout the ancient world. In fact, the synagogue that Jesus probably said this um, probably would have been a fairly, you know, maybe a couple hundred people within that synagogue. So Jesus walks into the synagogue, and there was a custom in that day that you would have people that would kind of begin, and they would read. They would read the scriptures, kind of a public reading of the scriptures. And uh, Jesus was sort of beginning his, if you want to think of it this way, his itinerant preaching ministry. So Jesus was then going to begin to go around from village to village and talk to people about God's kingdom and heal people and do all this type of stuff. But Jesus sort of launches his ministry from this particular synagogue, whereby he opens a scroll and begins to read it. Now listen to what the scroll is that Jesus read. It's actually a scroll from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 61. And this is what Jesus described. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovery of the sight to the blind, to set liberty those that are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And this is, and they rolled up the scroll and they gave it back to the tent and he sat down and all the eyes of the synagogue were upon him. And then basically Jesus makes a statement. Today, this prophecy is fulfilled. This is a really bold statement on Jesus' behalf. What Jesus is basically saying in no small words, that the prophecies that were made concerning the coming Messiah, the one that will come set this world, set Israel back to right, the one that will bring justice, the one that will bring righteousness, the one that will bring shalom, this prophecy is fulfilled right now. They're looking at him. This is a bold statement. So when people say Jesus never made an admission that he was the Messiah, it's exactly what Jesus did right here. It's exactly what Jesus stated. I am the Messiah. I am the one that's come from God through the lineage of David. But 
what's really essential is to note, again, how Jesus comes. He comes in the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, the correlation cannot be missed. Just in case you miss it, Luke has said this several times. Luke basically references Jesus' statement from, or this reiteration of this promise of Isaiah chapter 61. Then Luke then begins the rest of the narrative, rest of the chapter 4, and on into chapter 5. And basically what Luke is doing now is kind of giving this sort of uh, this menu option, this litany of details of all these things that Jesus does. So he basically jumps from story to story, from miracle to miracle, all linked back to verse 16 or verse 18 of Jesus basically saying, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. So the natural question that you and I should be asking is what does it look like for Jesus to do ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit? You guys following along? Anybody falling asleep? Okay, good. Told you this is going to be a little bit lengthy and a little bit theological, but hopefully it's all making sense. And if you're still sleeping, I'll wake you up as soon as we move on to the next thing. But it goes on and describes this. And around verse 31, we're told that Jesus teaches. Take a look at verse 31. It says this. And then he went down to Capernaum in the city of Galilee, and he was teaching them in the Sabbath, or on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his words possessed uh, an authority. So Jesus was teaching. On what authority was Jesus teaching? On what power was Jesus teaching? Again, all of this is linked back to verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon him. The Spirit of the Lord is what has enabled Jesus to teach, to expound, to communicate God's word authoritatively. Then jump on down a little bit to around verse 36. We're told that there was uh, somebody that had unclean spirits or demon possession, something that was tormenting them, something that was crushing them, whatever it was that was going on. We're told that Jesus had authority over those demonic spirits to cast them out and to basically put them back into a state of right-mindedness. So I want you to think about this. And the question, naturally, Luke wants us to be asking, how in the world did Jesus put people that were in a state of being upset or in a state of terror, how did he reorient their lives into a state of order and shalom and peace? The answer is, the power of the Holy Spirit was on Jesus. He was able to cast out Demonic forces that tormented others by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jump on down a little bit to around verse 39. says this, Jesus goes into a house. It's Simon Peter's house. Simon Peter's mother-in-law is really sick. Says she's got a really high fever. And then it says in verse 39, and he stood over her and rebuked the fever. Can you imagine that? Jesus rebuking a fever. I have no idea what that looks like. Be damned, you bad fever. I have no idea what Jesus says. I just, just imagine, like, I can't even imagine what Jesus is saying. Go back to hell where you came from. Like, you're not allowed here. I have no idea what Jesus says. But it says he rebuked this fever. And we're told that this fever immediately left. Then it goes on to say, immediately she rose and just began to serve again. You know, that's what Jesus wants to do. He wants to reorder our lives from things that oppress us, that crush us, that keep us bound. Jesus is not just simply here to give you a little bit of information so that you can walk away and just simply be a Jesus admirer. He wants to bring life into your brokenness. He wants to bring light into your darkness. This is what Jesus does. On what authority? How does Jesus do this? Again, Luke tells us it's all linked to verse 18 by the power of the Holy Spirit that's upon him. Again, Jesus, we're told, says that he says around verse 30 or 43 that he went out and he preached the good news of the kingdom uh, into other towns. How did Jesus preach? 
Again, it's all linked back to verse 18. In the power of the Holy Spirit, in John, uh, Mark, or Luke chapter 5, it goes on and begins to talk about uh, Jesus uh, had these massive crowds of people that were following him. Um, Jesus was a genius, so he realized because they didn't have PAs back then and have nice little sound theaters, sound systems. So what they did is they basically rented a boat or got on a boat and they would preach from the boat and all these people would be on the seashore. Jesus would preach and share the gospel to them while they're on the, on the but Jesus needed a boat. So Jesus asked Simon Peter, hey, can I borrow your boat? So while they're you know, pushing out, Jesus basically says, how long have you guys been fishing? They're like, we haven't caught anything. Jesus, why don't you throw your nets on the other side? Now, again, Jesus was not a fisherman, per se. I mean, obviously, maybe he fished before, but uh, Peter, this guy, was a master fisherman. It'd be like someone coming to you, let's, let's say you're an ex- expert in something, and somebody that has no idea, or you think that they have no idea what they're talking about, and they're like, hey, what about if you played like this note? You're like, uh, look, I'm a skilled musician. Who are you to be telling me? Or like, I'm a skilled architect. Who are you to be telling me what to wear? But I would imagine Peter was just kind of like, okay, whatever, so he cast his net on the other side, and there's a massive amount of fish. So how did Jesus know there was going to be this massive school of fish that was going to be caught? He, how, where did he get this wisdom from? Again, some would say it was because he was God. But I think what Luke's telling us is that Jesus operated in every way, shape, and form through the power of the Holy Spirit. So this raises a really important question. I'm going to summarize, just again, looking at what Jesus has done. So, so far we've seen that Jesus was given life by the Holy Spirit. Jesus was led by the Spirit. Jesus was given wisdom by the Holy Spirit, the story that we just read. Jesus was given power by the Spirit. He was enabled to heal by the Spirit. He was raised to life by the Spirit, is what Romans chapter 8, verses 10, we'll read that in a little bit. But, so all of these things were told that Jesus was able to do by the power of the Holy Spirit. This has raised a really important question. What does this mean? Like, why, why did Jesus do miracles? There's typically one or two ways that oftentimes evangelicals have read the life of Jesus and the miracles of Jesus. One of the ways is to read that Jesus did miracles as merely a way to authenticate his godness. In other words, when Jesus does a miracle, some would read and say that Jesus does miracles as a way of saying to the crowds, guys, everyone, just FYI, I'm God. Just to prove that I'm God, I'm going to make a meal for 5,000 people. Others would look at it and say, actually, what Jesus is doing is not necessarily authenticating that he is God, but that he's Messiah. It's really important to understand, at least in first century context, how they would have understood this. So someone asked the question, are you saying that Jesus isn't God? Not at all. Jesus is God. We believe emphatically that Jesus in the flesh is fully God, but we also believe that he's fully human. This is what we We believe. But this is what we understand, how a lot of scholars, theologians, have wrestled with this. That Jesus, while he was fully God, took upon human flesh, Jesus relinquished, willingly, certain attributes or aspects of what it means to be God. Let me give you an example of this. One of the things that we looked at last week is that the Holy Spirit, in relationship to God, is that the Holy Spirit is God. One of the reasons why we uh, use as an analogy or an example that basically four or five authenticating proves how do you determine if something or someone is God. They've got to be omniscient, meaning they've got to know everything. They've got to be omnipresent, meaning they've got to be able to be everywhere at every time throughout all history, beginning to end. In other words, they inhabit eternity. They've got to be um, omnipotent, have all power. The question is, was Jesus, for example, 
omnipresent. While on the earth for 33 years, was he everywhere spanning the entire universe at the same time? Answer to that is no. When he was in Galilee, he was in Galilee. He wasn't in Galilee and Jerusalem at the same time. When he was in Jerusalem, he was present in Jerusalem. So the question is, for example, where is God the Father right now? Where's God the Father? Anybody? Everywhere. He's here. He's at First Baptist down the street, at Grace, across this town. He's down in Orange County. He's in England. He's everywhere right now. He's in Pluto. Like, I mean, he is literally everywhere. He inhabits eternity at every moment, at every time, from the beginning of time to the end of time. That's, that's where God is. When Jesus stepped into this world, he gave up something. He gave up, at least we know for sure, his omnipresence. What about omniscience? Did Jesus know everything? This is an important question. Did Jesus know everything while he was on the earth? Did he know everything? It's a really important question a lot of times theologians wrestle with. Some would argue and say, well, yes, Jesus knew everything. That's how Jesus could know that there are fish on one side of the boat and not on the other side of the boat. You can tell Peter, throw your nets on the other side because it's where all the fish are at. But there are also passages that Jesus actually says, no man knows the day or the hour when the Son of Man will return, not even me. So it seems as if Jesus, there's certain things that Jesus himself doesn't even know. Now again, I realize in some ways these are, these are questions that may, you've never, may have never even thought about and maybe even be theologically bigger than what you've ever really wanted to think about because some of you, you're just like, I'm just trying to figure out how to conquer downloading porn. Some of you are just like, I have never even wrestled with these things because I just want to figure out how to not throw rage at my boss or how to not freak out when my kids are constantly freaking out, let alone trying to think about subjects like God. But here's my point. Why is this important? The question that we're basically asking boils down to this. What a lot of scholars have basically assumed that what we look at in Jesus, even though he was fully God, as one scholar theologian described it, that Jesus, even though he's fully God, he did not play the God card. In other words, what one other scholar actually described is that what we see in Jesus is that when we look at him, what we actually see is the picture of what it looks like to be fully human, led by the Holy Spirit. Is he God? Of course he's God. But he didn't play the God card with everything. He had power to do that. And there are several times in which Jesus says, do you not understand I have the power to do anything I want to do? But the implication is that I'm not playing that card. Instead, I'm being led by the Holy Spirit to do what the Father asked me to do. Do you understand what you see with Jesus is what it looks like to be fully human, yet fully following the life and the power of the Holy Spirit? This is what I think, what we see in the gospel accounts about the life of Jesus. So in summary, what does this really mean for Jesus' followers? What does it really mean for Jesus' followers if this is true? If Jesus, though he's fully God, he was also fully man, and there are certain elements of his godness, or godhood, or deity, if you want to call it that way, that he chose not to play into. Instead, Jesus, as man and as God, fully resigned himself to live according to following the Holy Spirit. What does that mean for you and I? I think, if anything, what it means is Jesus describes something like this in John chapter 14, verse 12, when Jesus is talking about one of these days, I'm going to go back to my Father, and it's good that I do that for you because 
if I go, the Holy Spirit then will come upon you as the Holy Spirit was really upon me. This is what Jesus is implying. And then it says, truly, truly, I say to you, wherever or whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works will these, uh, than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. So much to think about it for a minute. Jesus is speaking, first of all, to his disciples, right? Uh, the followers of Jesus, you know, Peter, James, John, all these guys. But there's no doubt most scholars would all argue and agree and believe that really Jesus is talking to the broader church as, as a whole. That, in other words, down throughout the ages, the church as a whole, filled with the Holy Spirit, will actually, according to Jesus, whoever believes in me will often do the works that I do and greater works. So this kind of raises the question. What does it mean the church, Christians, people, followers of Jesus, will actually do the works that Jesus does? The question basically boils down to, is it greater in... Um, volume or greater in, in, in reality or potency or power. In other words, Jesus raised people from the dead. It's kind of hard to top that, right? I mean, dead is kind of our greatest enemy. It's hard to top raising someone from the dead. Most scholars would all agree that probably what Jesus is talking about is more in volume. In other words, because the church in its expansiveness has, you know, Jesus was one person, one person empowered by the Holy Spirit doing all these amazing things. The church is billions of people throughout the ages following God, following the Holy Spirit. So I think what Jesus is basically implying is that the church who is living according to the Holy Spirit, following the dictates, following the heart, following the mind of God through the Holy Spirit will do even greater things throughout all the ages. So that raises the question, has it? Is it? Maybe make it more personal. Are you? Are we living our lives? Can we look at our lives and say there are things in my life that are purely miraculous? Or do we have to simply say that everything about my life is nothing but purely natural? There's no supernatural element in my life. Everything I do, I do based upon pure grit or pure will. Maybe to put it another way, are we living a purely natural life or supernatural life? Because I think we'd all argue that Jesus, even though he was a natural man, still God, he lived a life that was empowered by the Holy Spirit. I don't, I don't think you can argue that from the narrative of the entire New Testament, that Jesus was lived, lived his life according to the power of the Holy Spirit. So, Romans chapter 8, verses 10 through 11, finish with this thought, and I'm finished with some practical things to think about, and we'll wrap it up. It says this, that when you are not in the flesh, he says, uh, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So that the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So really what Paul is saying is that the Holy Spirit is the one that actually raised Jesus from the dead. And if the Holy Spirit is the one that raised Jesus from the dead, it's also the Holy Spirit that actually gave Jesus the ability to preach, gave Jesus the ability to heal, gave Jesus the ability to have wisdom, gave Jesus the ability to do all these miraculous things. And that same Spirit lives in you. There's nothing that should in any way, shape, or form hinder great things happening in our lives and through our lives. Is that, is that, is that making sense, guys? Do you understand the implications of this? Question then has to be asked, why does not more happen? What are some of the reasons and what are some of the hindrances? And we can spend a lot of time talking about this, but I just really want to focus on some more positive things. First of all, before we get to some of the more positive things, I think if anything, what we can uh, assume up in this point 
is that when Jesus says, greater things than these that I've done, you, the church, will do, I think it's safe to assume that what Jesus is saying is that more things will be done and not less. So what this means is that God wants to use and enable and empower all who are filled with his Holy Spirit. Some of you, again, might be looking at your life and being like, the last thing that's on my radar screen is figuring out how to live with missionary power to preach Jesus, to raise the dead, to pray for the sick, to help those who are broken. I'm just trying to figure out how to get through my day-to-day mundane scenario. But here's the beauty of this passage in Romans, is what Paul is saying is that if the power of Christ that raised him from the dead is in you, you know what that means? That there's power to help you with everything. Let me put it another way. If you have $10 billion that has been given to you, it's in your account, the question is, can you pay your mortgage off of $100,000? Say hypothetically, that's what it is. Everybody who lives on the Central Coast never even comes close to having a mortgage quite like that. But let me, let, me add, let me put it another way. If Christ put $10 million in your bank account, do you have enough money to pay your $20 grocery bill? Of course you do. The point of the matter is, is that if this greater power is alive in you, that means that all of those lesser things that you go through in your life that are holding you down, that are destroying you, that are crushing you, that are weighing you down, Christ has given you the power to overcome those things. You know what that means? That means the power to forgive those people that have offended you or wounded you is there in you via the Holy Spirit to help you. The power of Christ to help you say those words are really hard. I'm sorry, are, are, are there to help you. Aside from one of these days ensuring that you're going to go to heaven when you die. All of those things are part of that, part and parcel of that whole thing. But the reality is the power of God to help you have a sense of courage to pray for the sick, pray for the wounded, to step out on a limb and take risks in a sense, is there to help you. Because we know that it was the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. So in summary... Really, how should Jesus' followers be living this out? So first of all, I want to take a look at three things that Jesus' followers should not be doing to live stuff out, and I'll finish with some thoughts. One, we shouldn't be living by rules. A lot of times, we want simply a rule book. We want simple five-step plan to follow Jesus. So, you know, depending upon what part of the church you're in or depending upon what type of segment of Christianity you find yourself dialoguing with or dealing with, there are oftentimes certain rules in which we oftentimes live by, you know, certain Church groups have certain other rules to simply follow. But the fact of the matter is that simply only living by rules will make one rigid. Second one is don't simply live by formulas. And we oftentimes like to figure out what are the formulas. What were some of the formulas of people in ancient worlds? Or in the ancient world, people from ancient cultures, ancient civilizations, other Christians. How did they formulaically live their lives and therefore their formula worked for them, therefore their formula might also work for me? And then finally, living by experiences alone. So... Only simply jumping from an experience to an experience will oftentimes leave you in a place of complete instability. The fact of the matter is, is that, yes, God wants to give us experiences. The fact of the matter is, there are maybe some formulas that we can apply in our lives. The fact of the matter is that there are rules, in a sense, that God writes upon our heart. But all of these things are alone, alone cannot become cheap substitutes for really what it means to follow God. 
which is a relationship. And this brings me to the final three things I want to take a look at. How are we to then, as followers of Jesus, follow him? I'll just look at three things. I don't think you even have them up there. But first of all, I would think about it involves faith, trusting God. What do you think about this for a second? How powerful is confidence and trust? Let me put it into the context of relationship. If someone were to come to you and be like, hey, you know what? I fully trust you. How does it make you feel? It makes you feel honored. It makes you feel like, wow. You, or, or you're kind of like, oh my gosh, I totally deceived them. Like, they think I'm trustworthy, but whatever, that's cool, I'll take it. But the point of the matter is, trust is a really valuable thing. And when we come to God and say, God, I trust you. I trust you with my life. I trust you with my heart, no matter how fractured or broken or fragile it might be. I trust you with everything about me. I trust you. He says it's impossible to please God apart from faith. Faith in God pleases God because it's God's way of basically looking at his creation and saying, they trust me. Life is possible now to them. The opposite of trust is, or faith is disbelief, not trusting God. The second one is intimacy. Intimacy, meaning having and cultivating a relationship of oneness with God. Uh, pastor, preacher who's passed away now by the name of John Wimber, founder of the Vineyard Movement, said something like this. Developing intimacy is really developing a practice of communion with the Father. Intimacy is developing a practice of communion with the Father. If you think about that, I love that picture because that's really what it is. It's simply learning how to sit down with God and not feel as if you've got to do anything to please him. You can just sit there in his presence and be comfortable. Think about how many times you've ever been with somebody, human being, human person, and you've sat in their presence and it's a little bit awkward. Maybe some of those awkward silences are like, this is really, really weird because I don't know what to say to them. They don't know what to say to me. It's really awkward. So what you do is you turn on the radio. You want to show them a YouTube video. You want to show them your you know, Instagram feed. You want to do something that involves entertainment or involves some sort of commotion because the sheer silence of intimacy is absolutely terrifying to you. Now bring that over in the relationship with God. How many of you actually are terrified just being in the presence of God? I don't mean a sense of holy terror. I mean a sense of just like, this is, this is weird. I need music. I need something. I just need, I need somebody speaking in tongues or somebody babbling or somebody preaching and yelling at me. I need something because just sheer silence of me and God is absolutely unnerving. I think one of the reasons why we are absolutely uncomfortable with intimacy is because we feel like we are constantly keeping up this game of hiding our crap from God. This is a passage in the book of Genesis that basically describes Adam and Eve. It says, and Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. Do you know what that means? That in the presence of each other, there is nothing hiding them, nothing to cover their own nakedness, but they're completely unashamed. That's the best way I would describe intimacy with God is just being able to sit there in his presence, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, just knowing that he loves you, he loves you, he loves you, and you love him back. So intimacy, it's a matter of just simply developing, cultivating a relationship of intimacy with this God that loves you. Finally, I think it also involves holiness. Holiness. And really what holiness is is just the cultivation of God's life within our lives. So holiness oftentimes gets a bad publicity in terms of just thinking about all the stuff that you should never do. Like holy people are people that don't drink beer or worse, light beer. Uh, but the reality is holiness is, is you know, people that don't go to 
bad movies or art movies or they, they don't listen to non-Christian music. That's what holiness is. But the reality is that's a very, very limited and narrow, and I would even say superficial, understanding of what holiness is. Because, yes, it does involve saying no to certain things. In other words, holiness is basically a way of saying no to things that interrupt or interfere God sh- with God's shalom. So holiness is, it's, it's basically a way of saying, I'm going to say no to whatever it is that interferes or disrupts God's shalom, God's peace, God's kingdom in my life right now. I'm going to say no to that because that mars, disrupts, breaks down all that God wants to do. But holiness is not just simply saying no to all that disrupts God's shalom. It also is a way of saying yes to all that enhances or brings forth God's shalom. So what that means is it says, God, I say yes to you that I will give forgiveness to those that have wounded me. God, yes, I will say yes to you to give cups of cold water to people that are thirsty, the weak, the vulnerable, the poor, the hurting. God, yes, I will say yes to you to all of those things that enhance, bring forth, promote justice and righteousness and goodness throughout this earth. And it's a way of basically just saying, and again, if we put it this way, did Jesus do all these? All of them. Jesus was holy in everything he did. Did Jesus say no to a lot of things? Of course, there are a lot of things that Jesus didn't do. But there's a lot of things that Jesus did do that promoted God's kingdom. Was Jesus intimate with the Father all the time, even to the point of death on the cross, that Jesus even cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. On the cross, his final words were words of intimacy. And then finally, confidence. Did Jesus have confidence in the Father? Yes, Jesus had full confidence in the Father. He says, I do always everything that which pleases the Father. Jesus shows us what it looks like to be a man. Even though he's God, fully God, he was also fully man. He shows what it looks like to be a man, fully living, trusting the Holy Spirit, living a life filled with the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you one final thing. This is what I've been trying to do the past few weeks as I've been thinking, praying through this. What does it look like for me? One of the things that I've been doing is I've been just in the morning asking God, like, God, how do you want to organize my day? And even throughout the day when I meet people, I'm like asking God questions. God, are there words that maybe you want to speak to me? Is there a vision maybe you want to give me? Thoughts that you have impressed upon my heart? Is this a word that maybe you want to share through me to somebody else? And I'm constantly asking those questions. Or if I talk with somebody and they're sharing with me, you know, about some sort of gnarly thing that they're going through, or they feel sick or they feel... Uh, they have some form of infirmity, just, you know, being like, hey, do you mind if I just pray for you? Um, no, that's kind of weird. I mean, sometimes even they're not even non-Christians, like, they're, they're people that don't even know Jesus. Just ask them, can, can I pray for you? And the reality is, is that by simply cultivating a heart that just wants to hear God and wants to follow God, you know, look, it's, will I run the risk of being looked at as kind of some freak, like asking people to pray for those that are sick? Probably, but at the end of the day, there may be the possibility that the kingdom of heaven will break through. God may heal somebody, or if anything, they may walk, I may walk away from the situation, that person may feel the sense of God's favor and love upon their life. And that can change someone's life to turn their heart over towards God rather than away from God. So I want to invite you to ask the question, what does it look like for you to live your life the way Jesus did, empowered by the Holy Spirit? Final question is, are you thirsty? Do you even want that? Do you want victory over sin? Do you want power in areas where you feel weak? Do you want evangelistic fervor? (laughs) 
to be able to open your mouth and proclaim and speak forth God's goodness wherever you're at? Do you want power to maybe even pray for the sick and see them made whole? Do you want the ability to be able to have power to say those words that are really hard to say, I am sorry in a humble way, not an arrogant way, but in a humble way that actually can bring healing to a fractured or broken relationship. All of these things, we're told, are given to us through the Holy Spirit. This is what we're invited to come to this table to receive. We're going to sing. We're going to respond. And the reason why we respond is, is as a way of just saying, we, we need God. And one of the things that we've been doing over the past few weeks is just saying, as a response, we just want to lift up our hands and worship to God. So why don't we all stand right now? I'm going to have worship you come on up. I'm going to pray for you. But before I pray, I want to read just a quick little story, real quick little story out of uh, one of C.S. Lewis's books. It's called The Silver Chair. It's this great little story. It's about Aslan standing at a river, and there's a little girl by the name of Jill, and they're having this dialogue. Just listen to the storyline. I think it's totally appropriate to where we're at. And again, the question is, do you want God's power? Or do you feel like you're completely sufficient within yourself to figure out your life and to get over the challenges that you have? Do you feel as if you still have the power to make something of yourself? Or are you in a place where you just say, I'm powerless. I've tried. I've failed. I need God's help. The hope is, the great promise is that we have a God that's here right now, that's eager and willing to pour upon you help, strength. So I want you to listen to this, and then I'm going to pray immediately, and then we're going to sing. What I want to do is I want to invite you that if, if you're here this morning and you are hungry, this is you, I want you to think about the posture of which you're standing, and I want to encourage you, lift up your hands. Like literally, physically, lift up your hands as a, as a sign of saying, God, I'm, I'm, I'm thirsty, I'm hungry. I'm stretching out my hands to you as like a beggar, like a posture of a beggar saying, I don't have anything to give. You have everything to give. I have need for all things, and you have everything that I need. Stretch out my arms to you as a way of saying, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, come satisfy me. Listen to the story, let me pray, and then let's sing. If you're here and you sense your need for God, I invite you to unfurl your arms, open up this vulnerable state, being able to say, God, I'm hungry for you. Raise them to God, okay? If you're here and you're totally uncomfortable by that, I get it, I understand, it's fine. But the rest of you, that's you. Just raise your hands to God. If you're here this morning and there's anything you need prayer of, we have some people over off the side that would love to pray for you. So just take some time and go over there to them as well. We have communion in the back as a way of reminding ourselves of the reason why we can be vulnerable to this God is because he was vulnerable to us in the most phenomenal way that he was crushed, bruised. There's nothing more vulnerable to literally not just be standing this way, but to have your, ne- your hands nailed to a cross as a way of saying, I'm open to the whole world. This is God made vulnerable to you. So therefore you and I have the ability and the strength by God's power to become vulnerable to him. Listen to the story. Let's pray. Let's sing. Aslan says, are you not thirsty? Jill said, I'm dying of thirst. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered, this only by the look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at the motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious, rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. 
will you promise not to, not to do anything if I come? Asked Jill. I make no promise, said Aslan. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat little girls, she asked. I've swallowed up girls and boys and women and men and kings and emperors, cities and realms, said Aslan. Then I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step near. I suppose I must go back and look for another stream then. And Aslan said, there is no other stream. This is what the gospel promises. It promises the stream of life. So let's pray. Let's lift up our hands in worship to God, okay? So God, right now we come to you as a way of just saying we need you. Holy Spirit, come, flood, fill, satisfy our hearts. Holy Spirit, come and wash away our shame, our guilt, our defilement, our rebellion. God, all these things that keep us at arm's length and and if any way keep us outside of your kingdom that is life-giving. So God, we want to come to you humbly and submit to you, the life-giving God that you are. So God, in response to you, we want to sing, we want to confess sin, we want to worship, we want to receive from you now.